We are in the year 2022. That is the year of discovery. Great. Three people know that. All right. Uh, uh, It's rare, you guys, that I pause when I'm talking. So when I pause, that's like a response thingy. All right, cool. So the the year of discovery, and, and the year of discovery is all about the idea that God is obviously unknowable in total, but wow, there's so much stuff that he has revealed. And we just gotta get fired up about that because when we learn about it, we can align with it. We don't want to look at the world through our own lenses. We wanna try to put on the lenses of God. We wanna see things like he sees them. That way, we'll be able to adjust and become more and more like the Son of God, Jesus Christ, which is the whole point that the Holy Spirit's trying to do inside of us. So in this year of discovery, we're gonna try to get together every week here in service and talk about different series, different books of the Bible to be able to say, Matt, how does God see this? How does God see this? How does God see this? That's the whole point. So we're in the series called Experience, excuse me, Discovering the Kingdom, Discovering the Kingdom. And it's through the book of 1 Corinthians. We are on part two. We had part one last time. If you're brand new with us, just go back. You can always listen to those online for free. Grab that, and then you'll be caught up with where we're at today. But when we talked last time, when we kind of kicked this off, we explained that the book of 1 Corinthians is a letter campaign that was going back and forth between a brand new church plant that was only about four years old that Paul had started in Corinth, Greece, and now he was trying to deal with some of the drama and chaos that had come into the church since he planted it. What we find out is that the church was really resisting his leadership. They actually kind of wanted to level up and upgrade from their pastor, Paul the Apostle, to somebody else that was better. Now, to me, this just seems so bizarre because from our perspective, if you go back 2,000 years, let's say, hey, Pastor Lance is shifting out of Bridgeway, and there's this candidate dude, and his name is the Apostle Paul. You guys want that guy? And everyone's like, "Mm, I don't know. How in the world would you not want the Apostle Paul as your senior pastor, right? Unless you got Jesus waiting in the lobby. I just have no idea why you would turn this dude down. But once again, he's very familiar to them. And when you're very familiar with something, sometimes you don't realize what you have. Well, sure enough, they were beginning to resent him. They were beginning to resist him. And so... We started out by reading the first part of the letter where he says, kids, before I get into any of the challenges, I want to remind you who you are in Jesus. So last week, we had this whole long list of God has done this for you. God has made this of who you are. And the reason why is any correction he has moving forward, and the book is high challenge, any correction, he is saying this, kids, the reason why I'm correcting you is that's not who you are. Because we always go, man, the Bible's kind of brutal on us, always telling us to change. The Bible would never command you to change if the Holy Spirit hadn't given you the power and the love and the grace to do so. So he reminds them right off the top, you know who you are in Jesus, right? And if you are that person, why are you acting like this? Why are you saying this? Why are you doing this? It just doesn't line up. So we spend some time talking about who we are in Christ. So now it goes into correction mode on the church, and we'll see if there's any relation to us today, right? That's the idea, is figure out if there's any application. The main problem in Corinth was pride. Now some people would say, some scholars would say, that pride is actually at the heart of every sin. And the reason why is sin means doing things another way other than God. Well, the only reason you would ever do something other than God is because you think you have the right to do so. That's a little bit prideful. Because if you truly understood God is God, you're not, why are you arguing with him? Does that make sense? You should say, I'm the creation, of course I'm gonna do whatever God says. But when there's resistance or choosing another path, ultimately there's a pride in there. So pride was the deep down root problem, but really the catalyst of it that was bringing it out for this particular passage was wisdom. 
Now you would say, I don't, I, don't, I don't really get it. I thought wisdom was a good thing. Well, it is, depending on which type of wisdom we're talking about. Are we talking about God's wisdom? Or are we talking about the world's wisdom? You go, well, I didn't know there was a difference. Well, there actually is. But here's the intriguing part about wisdom for the Corinthians. They were in what we now call modern-day Greece. They knew that their whole history was being a big deal in the Greek Empire. Even though they were Roman-owned now, they loved their history. And, and Greek, ancient Greek culture loved philosophy. They loved the idea of beautiful oratory skills, and the superstars were not the musicians. The superstars were not always the actors. The superstars in ancient Greece were the orators. The ability to come out and say something that would blow your mind in a super winsome way, kind of weave their words around, everything sounded just perfect. Whoever could talk the best was the best. So they were enamored with this whole idea that they would have a new way to say things, a new way to understand things, and they were obsessed with it. Well, you got to imagine they come out of this culture where those are all the heroes. They connect in with a guy named Paul the Apostle, and he says, you do know that you can connect with the divine. You do know that the Lord Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins. You can be transformed that you can have all that is dormant in you awakened by the power of God. You now become partakers in the divine nature. You now have full forgiveness. You're living in the state of grace. You now have the Holy Spirit come and indwell you and illuminate scripture to you. You are now walking in the power and authority of heaven. And they were like, dang, this is awesome. And then they got gifted, and then all of a sudden there's spiritual gifts working everywhere. They're having the Holy Spirit light up on tongues and healing and prophecy, and they're like, we are it, right? It was everything that they wanted. Well, the problem is, is that instead of just seeing it as a gift of God and living into the reality that Jesus was trying to build for them, they were creating their own story, and their own story was not as healthy. So what we ended up seeing was that when they got into wisdom, they started to lose their way, and Paul is going to correct them. The fill in the blank on the sheet in front of you is very simple, because the idea is for every legit version, there's a counterfeit version. So here's your fill in the blank. God's wisdom is greater than human wisdom. God's wisdom is greater than human wisdom. We'll talk about what that means. Would you turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 10? 1 Corinthians 1, 10. If you're brand new to the Bible and you happen to have one, just drop it open in the middle, go to the right. It's gonna be really far to the right. Page 952, if you're grabbing one of the Bibles under the seat in front of you. I'm reading out of the ESV. That's the English Standard Version. If you go, wow, my Bible that I'm looking at sounds a little bit different than what the pastor's reading, uh, that's the version I'm reading out of, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 10, page 952. All right, we're going to kind of slow everything down, go through it kind of section by section. Let's just take the first verse and see what we have here. Here we go. Paul said, I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. All right. If the core problem was pride, the catalyst was seeking wisdom and being fancy, the ultimate symptom and outcome was division. Because once you're all that, and you have your own opinions, and you are chasing after what's right and best, you now compete against other people and there's division. Does that make sense? So that is what Paul is wrestling with right here. But I want you to think for a moment what Paul just said. He's talking to a church full of all sorts of people from different backgrounds, and he said this, I want you to be unified in mind and in action. 
you guys know anything about church? Nobody agrees on anything. Like, what in the world? How are we supposed to agree? He said, on everything, right? I want you to agree on everything. Man, we can't agree on anything. Sure enough, it starts out about belief systems, and it's kind of like, well, we start out, and we think it's pretty awesome. Do you love Jesus? I love Jesus. Wow, that's cool. All right, so, so when's he coming back? Well, like, he, the, the rapture. What's that? No, I don't believe that. Uh, well, what about predestination versus free will? Well, well, well what, about, what about, and then all of a sudden we layer politics on top of it. Well, what do you think about this? And then we layer something, and we are just constantly like all over the place. Nobody agrees on anything. I'm gonna suggest to you, the only, the only one that you will ever agree with is you, and that is only temporary. <laughs> if you're in solitary confinement, at some point you're going to argue with you because you're gonna come up with a different opinion and go, I don't know what I was thinking, right? And then you just argue with yourself. So there is always this debate and argument, and especially in our culture is similar to theirs, which says you are all independent, free thinking, do your own thing, don't follow anybody else. You've got an opinion that's just as equal as everybody else's. So what happens is we're all empowered to think we're right. And then we just fight about it, right? All right. But I wanna tell you, when it comes to Christianity, and I'm talking about not just church to church, but believer to believer, there is usually two reasons why we divide. And this is really the heart of what we're gonna to get to today is the idea of divisiveness. When we divide, it means we no longer have fellowship. We actually do not want to be together anymore. That's what divide means. Usually, Christians divide over two things. One of them is doctrinal belief systems. That's, once again, opinions. The second one is relational conflicts, okay? Now, I need you to hear me very carefully on what I'm gonna say next. Unfortunately, many times relational conflicts are masked by claiming it's doctrinal when it's not. Too often it's immaturity and emotional dysfunction that separates Christians, but instead of growing, maturing, and working through difficult issues, we divorce. I just need to let that soak in for a moment. Because here's what happens. Nobody wants to say, I'm leaving the church because you hurt my feelings, right? But isn't that true? Because that's not legit. You'll get challenged and you'll say, well, no, 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 you should be able to get over it. And you go, but I can't get over it. I was too wounded. So what we say is, I have a doctrinal problem with that church. Are you sure you can't get over the doctrinal problem? Is it that big of a deal? Hmm, interesting. All right. The immediate Corinthian problem is what? This whole division over wanting different opinions to be true. All right, so let's talk about unity, all right? Once again, Paul said, I want you to agree, be of the same mind, don't divide, and have the same decisions on things. One thing I need to be very clear about is in a, a little later in the book, Paul is going to highlight that he's a big fan of variety and diversity. What he will never argue for is uniformity. Now, that's good news for us because a lot of us have a little bit of a rebellious spirit in us, right? We have this little independence thing. Like, I've never felt like I was just like anybody else. I always felt like I was a little bit different, and I thought a little bit different, and I liked different things. I need you to understand that that diversity is part of God's plan. That's not bad. That's actually very good. You're going to find out that diversity is kind of part of the way that God designs his family. Now, what is he arguing for? I'm gonna have you write down, if you take notes, I want you to write down three terms. Three terms, they're just three different words. Write them on your paper, and I'm gonna define them, and we're gonna talk a little bit about them. You ready? Write these down. Unity, diversity, and division. Unity, diversity, and division. Unity means that there is an agreement to be together, and it doesn't mean that everything is agreed upon. It means we're going to be 
together and we are going to largely try to be on the same page. Diversity means that we are going to be different and that that is good. The problem is wherever there is difference, there will be disagreement. That doesn't mean something's wrong. And you go, well, I don't understand. Why does it have to lead to disagreement? Because we're different. Every time we're different, we have a difference of opinion. So let, let me use some very simple, easy examples. Personality types. There are some of you that are introverts, some of you that are extrovert, right? Yep. So which way are we supposed to run church? Are we supposed to lean it towards the introverts or the extroverts? There are some of you that are very comfortable being demonstrative, so should our worship be up, hands up, going crazy, or should we kind of do the Puritan kind of hands down in the pocket thing? Like, what are we gonna do? And if we're gonna just talk about sheer perspective, should we run it through the lens of how the male gender sees things or the female gender sees things? Everything we have that's different about us will bring in a different opinion, and that means there will be disagreement. What I'm telling you is that's not bad, but it does create disagreement, all right? The last word that I gave you was division. Division means not just disagreement, but separation. Meaning I'm not going to be with you anymore, right? That's a whole different level. So where is that line? Let's get very practical. Where is the line where Christians, whether it's with your church or a church with another church or you in a small group or a missional community, where do, where's the dividing line where you say we can no longer be together? Where's the line where we're supposed to chase after unity? Right? That's what I want to talk about. So I'm going to begin by giving us two boundaries on either side. One boundary is that it can never be judgmental, elitist separation. If you ever hit that mark where you say, we're the only ones that know the truth, we're the only ones that God loves, and everyone else is garbage, the minute you get there, you've stepped outside of the lines of Jesus. Does that make sense? That's one boundary. On the other side, it should never be compromising, watered-down, meaningless blending. Does that make sense? That's the other line where you just go, I don't believe anything, right? I just like to hang out. That's not what we're talking about. That's, there's no richness to that. So we have two boundaries. Praise the Lord, there is a big old middle, yeah, where we can live in. Here's what we're chasing for. In the middle, we are seeking the reality of being clear on what we believe, our perspective, clear on what others believe and their perspective, and then make healthy determinations of necessary gaps. It means that we look honestly at what's on the table and we seek to embrace all that is from the Lord, seek to unify as much as possible while being clear and respectful about areas that we simply cannot find common ground. That's what we're looking for. And you go, well, that's, you just talked a lot and I fell asleep in the middle. <laughs> Here's what it means. We go out of our way to find common ground and fight for unity. But at the same time, we're also very clear and calling out what we see. Does that make sense? There is so much middle ground to live in. We always think that unity means sameness. It does not. I would suggest to you we should never chase for sameness. That's unrealistic. Let me give you three other words. Write these down. These are three different layers in the church. Write these three words down. Family, kinship, and partnership. Family, kinship, and partnership. Here's what family means. Family means that God may consider that other person one of his kids, but you can't quite see how. Does that make sense? That category of family demands extreme maturity because what it means is, is you might be wrong. See, family, and I understand, there are many of us that have family members, well, I should say all of us, we have family members that you kind of go, I hope they don't come. <laughs> you don't understand what I'm saying? Like to a family gathering, you're like, Lord, I don't really want to pray about it, but if you do it, that would be sweet right? We all have those. So family is where you're going, listen, I guess we're attached, 
in some way, but I don't even, I can't even see how they even belong with us. They're just, they're so other than. Okay, but in order to acknowledge that the family of God is broad requires maturity because what it means is you don't know all things. Are you willing to go to that maturity level to be able to say, what if my theology isn't perfect? Maybe God has included me and I don't deserve to be here, right? All right. The second word I gave you was kinship. In church, it means that all the core doctrines you kind of agree on, but there's a ton of secondary issues that you really don't, right? In church, this is where I believe Jesus was really trying to get his family together. In John chapter 17, it's called the high priestly prayer. It's Jesus' longest recorded prayer. And it's right before he steps out of this world and he prays and says, Father, I want all your kids to be one like we are one. That was his heart. How do we get the family together? So kinship is gonna go, listen, I understand you don't all wanna go play Parcheesi together. I get it. But I do want you to all be together and actually care for one another. I need you to realize you're gonna disagree on the majority of issues, but on the core things, I get it. We have to have some commonality. Now this is where you ask the question, what are core versus secondary issues? Now if you wanna get technical, um, people like Norman Geisler has, has written out a list of 14 core uh, doctrines of Christianity. Uh, we'll just make it a little bit more simple today. One of the core doctrines of Christianity is that mankind can't save themselves. Does that make sense? Where you go, listen, at no point is someone who's spiritually dead going to earn their way to life. That's just a core doctrine of Christianity. So we could disagree on a bunch of stuff, but if you start going, you know what? I can be a better person and I can earn my way. Whoop, you just slipped into religion and you stepped outside of Christianity. Does that make sense? Another core doctrine would be this. Are there many ways to heaven? No. There's only one Savior that showed up. His name is Jesus Christ. So he's the only way to get to heaven. How do we know that? Because the Bible said there's only one way to go to heaven, and his name is Jesus Christ. Okay, so that one was easy. Praise the Lord. We got that one. So there's only not very many of those. Everything else is debatable, right? Everything else is debatable. So kinship means, man, all right, I'm in the church. I don't feel like everybody agrees with me on most things, but I know that their hearts are all for the Lord. I know that they are shooting for what is core. I just think that they're probably wrong on a bunch of other stuff, right? I mean, that's kind of that's a, a safe place. All right, the last one, the last word I gave you is partnership. Partnership means that on most areas, all the important ones and tons of the other ones, you pretty much see the same and you can do ministry relatively easy together, okay? That's where we like it. That is our sweet spot. That's where we go, man, I joined this missional community and I was like, oh my gosh, these are all brothers from another mother, all that kind of thing, right? You're like, I go in, I'm like, do you like Jesus? They're like, yeah. I'm like, woo! I'm like, do you like chocolate? I like chocolate. Oh my gosh, we're the same person, right? And you're just like, wow, everything's easy, and we all talk about stuff. And every time somebody brings up a subject, we all agree on it, and we go, yeah, that's fun. I'm in a good group. Does that make sense? Now, this is unfortunately what denominations are all about. Everyone moves around until they all congregate with people that agree with them, right? So if you are a super charismatic person hanging out in a very conservative church, you feel like a fish out of water. And so you're like, I don't belong here. So you go find other fish. You're like, are you a weird fish? And they go, yeah, if I had arms, I would raise them up. Does that make sense? And you go, yes, we're the same fish. And then you hang out together. Now. The problem with that is that you don't have diversity. Because remember, diversity means disagreement. And we don't like to disagree, so we struggle. And we just keep moving churches till we find our people, which basically means you don't wanna be challenged. Does that make sense? All right, now, I do wanna do one warning before I step off of this concept. 
You guys know what a Venn diagram is? You probably don't know the name, but you know the picture. So imagine that we're looking at a, at a slide and there is a big circle on one side and then another circle on the other side and they overlap. Sometimes there's a third circle and in the middle is like a sweet spot where they all overlap. That's a Venn diagram, right? So basically what we're saying is, I'm like this, you're like this, and wherever we cross over, we have that in common. Does that make sense? So we love doing this. We talk about who can I hang out with, who can I not hang out with, who can I talk to, who do I, what church do I go to, and we draw our little diagrams. Here's the problem in the warning. On top of your Venn diagram is a big old God-shaped circle that says family, and it goes outside of your lane. That's really uncomfortable, right? Now, I'm gonna say something that might be a little bit tough for you guys, but I need to say it. Since salvation is based on God's grace, not doctrinal adherence, it's going to encompass areas you disagree with. Do you understand what I'm saying? We need to understand that God is going to include people in his family that you will disagree with vehemently. As a matter of fact, you're going to be rather stunned at who shows up in heaven with you, right? You're like, no way, right? Okay, now I, I wanna tell you a little personal story. Uh, some of you that have been with me for a long time, you know this about me, but let me just share a little bit of my journey with this. For the first 10 to 15 years of my ministry uh, at Bridgeway, and if we add on the other ministry, that's another four years before that, I operated under a principle that said, there is a right way to build a church. There is a right way that we should all pursue God, seek his word, and find out the best way to run a church. Now, there's nothing wrong with that per se, because it sounds very good. And you would go, oh, well, that's nice. You're a senior pastor trying to say, how do I seek God and find out the best way to run a church? But there is a problem with it. And I did not know that for the first 10 to 15 years. Why? Because if there's a right way to do church, there is a wrong way to do church. And if there's a wrong way to do church, I have to consistently analyze who's more right and who's more wrong. And I have to figure out what they're doing wrong so I don't do what they're doing wrong and what it does is it creates fences everywhere. Now, <clears throat> I grew up um, in a variety of backgrounds, so I had a lot of flexibility. But then I also got involved in what's called apologetics. For many, many years, I was involved in what would be a portion of Christianity called apologetics. It's defending the faith, it's learning about answers, it's trying to sort out like proof of the resurrection and all that kind of stuff. That was a big part of my life, and I think it's beautiful, I love it, and it's a fun part of Christianity. The challenge with it is when you're always trying to seek out what's right and wrong, you end up becoming a watchdog and analyzing everyone else's beliefs. Does that make sense? So if you're not careful and you're not mature enough, you'll end up being harsh and judgmental on everybody else because you're taught to defend your position and fight the opponent. And you go, okay, well, that, there's some good things about it and there's some bad things about it. All right, cool. Because I was so into that and I was quite convinced that I was right about everything, it was gonna be very hard for God to have someone argue me out of that perspective, right? So we ended up having to be super sneaky. So here's what he did, and he's really brilliant at this stuff. He has me meet a number of years ago with a pastor of a denomination I was not in. As a matter of fact, didn't know the pastor all that well. He sat down with me and started asking me questions about whether or not I had, I had concerns and compassion and love and vision for our region. And I was like, yeah, no, sure don't. And I ended up leaving that meeting feeling identically the same. The problem is, is then the Holy Spirit got involved. And he started pinging my mind and making me go crazy on everything I was thinking about. All of a sudden I started going, oh wait, hold on a second. Wait, are you, Lord, are you saying that I can't just focus on my flock? 
Like I have to be responsible for like loving on other people. Oh man, that's a whole different side of my job. Wait, what are we doing? Like you wanted unity, that means our churches have to get along. That means I actually have to put some effort into creating relationships and creating bridges. And I just started going all over the place, becoming obsessed with the idea that God wanted a bigger family. And all of a sudden it dawned on me, a realization. Now once again, no one argued this to me. When we tend to argue with other people, they tend to lock up. No one argued, the Holy Spirit did this. All of a sudden, I realized this, there is not one way to do church. There is simply God's way that he called you to run this church because he needed a different pastor to run a different type of church. And why? Because he's in charge discipling a region. And if he's going to disciple a region of various people, he needs some big churches and some small churches and some medium churches. He needs some charismatic churches and conservative churches. He needs some that are hardcore about doctrine and he needs some that are passionate about worship. He needs some that are disciple-based and some that are evangelistic-based. Why? Because he knows how to orchestrate the broadest ecosystem and you're just do your part. Amen? Amen? But what that did is it blew out in my mind the idea of judging whether or not they were doing what I was doing. Does that make sense? And I started being able to appreciate, oh, wait a second, you're nailing down that part of the kingdom. Good for you, that's awesome, I wanna champion you. I'm holding down this part. This other person's holding down that part. And suddenly I was able to celebrate wins across the board. All right, this I believe is what begins to root out divisiveness and creates respect, appreciation, and love. Yeah? All right, let's move forward. Here we go. Verse 11, for it has been reported to me by Chloe's people, that's just a crew from Corinth that came in, that there is quarreling among you, my brothers and sisters. Let's pause, quarreling. Do you guys get nervous when people intensely disagree in front of you? Some of you do and some of you don't. There are some of us that grew up in a household where we're very nervous when voices get raised because when a disagreement starts, cops get called later. You understand what I'm talking about? And you have a trigger. It's like, okay, if anyone's gonna start raising their voices, something bad's going to happen. Now, there's others of us that grew up in houses where we yell about everything. And it's, it's like we're screaming about cereal and we don't even know why, right? And so we're so used to everything's disagreement. I don't know if I've told you guys this, but the most, uh, the most eye-opening thing I ever had when I went to Italy is that there's one phrase I heard over and over. I don't speak Italian. Here's the phrase, you ready? No, 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 no. That was it. Everywhere I went, man, it was no, 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 no. No matter what you said, it was no. Here's another way to look at it, right? And I was like, man, why is everyone fighting all the time? They're like, what do you mean? Right? It's just that's how we talk. That's normal for us. Okay, depending on your nuclear family history, you will be either comfortable or uncomfortable in disagreement. So when all of a sudden there is tension in a church, some people panic and other people go, it's about time something gets done. Does that make sense? So all I'm trying to tell you is that what he says is there's division. Division and disagreement are two different things. Don't automatically panic. Some tension has to occur for change. Does that make sense? But you're looking at it going, oh my gosh, everyone's gonna walk away from me. Not always. Sometimes what you don't want is calm because calm doesn't mean change or transformation. So always check your bias and go, Lord, If you're up to something, I'm behind it. I don't need to be driven by fear. Does that make sense? All right. So how do we recognize when someone is promoting divisiveness or not? You got two tests. If you're close enough, test their intention, okay? Let me give you an example. Let's say that you get together with four people and you're all at Starbucks. You're all Christians. You don't know each other super well, but you're sitting there And one of the guys that's kind of newer to the group, all of a sudden he goes, oh my gosh, did you guys see that guy that just walked in? And you're like, yeah, what about him? Heretic. 
And you're like, did you just call somebody a heretic? What are you, what are you doing, right? Now, what do we do with that guy? Is he promoting divisiveness? Because here's what's interesting, and you don't have to write this down, I think you'll understand. There are some really good-hearted Christians that are just stupid. Like me. Okay, praise God, yes, like thank you. Me. Thank you for raising your hand, yes. <clears throat> I will affirm. Um, <laughs> that, that you realize the guy, now imagine you dig down in there and you're like, dude, you can't say that somebody's a heretic and not think that's divisive. And he's like, what are you talking about? No, like I was listening to the sermon and all of a sudden he was just like going off on this one thing. And I was like, man, that's weird. You go, yeah, but you don't call him a heretic, right? But his heart was not trying to be divisive. Then there's other people that their spirit is so entrenched that they are creating division. They're trying to get you to separate from someone else. Does that make sense? All right, so if you can get close enough, you gotta examine what are they trying to communicate? Because they may not be trying to be divisive at all. If you can't get that close, you have to do default to test number two, and that is check the fruit. What is the fruit of how they are communicating? If a church is divisive, what's the fruit of the people in the church? What are they doing in community? How are they treating people? How are they handling things? Are people loving God more or less by being involved with them? Same thing in your small group. Same thing in your missional community. Same thing with your friends. What's the fruit of your friend's ministry? Because if they're breaking relationships everywhere or all they're doing is needlessly offending, you go, I think there's a problem. But if you ultimately realize they're just poor communicators, all right, then you lead and guide them a little bit to be better. Does that make sense? All right, here's where we go, verse 12. He said, what I mean about divisions is that each one of you says, I follow Paul's teaching or I follow Apollos or I follow Cephas or I follow Christ. What is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so no one can say that you were baptized in my name. Oh, hold on. I did baptize also the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I don't even know whether I baptized anybody else. Okay, this is biblical evidence that Paul did not have an eraser. Amen? That is so absurd. I didn't baptize anyone. Well, hold on. No, no, no. I baptized this one whole house. Anyway, I don't know who I baptized. You're like, dude, just go and delete. Like on your computer, back up, bro. Just do some editing before you print. That's all I'm saying. Anyway, didn't have that. All right. So what we have is uh, the people in the church were like, well, I love this leader and I'm all about this guy and this camp and this camp and this camp. We know most of them. We know Paul. We know Christ. Cephas is Peter, so we know Peter. The only new guy to the table is Apollos, and he's really important. Here's why. We learn in Acts 18 that he was an Egyptian Jew, highly educated, super passionate, and a brilliant speaker. He was a traveling evangelist, he was a key partner in Paul's ministry, and he was discipled by Priscilla and Aquila in Ephesus. He was the best of both worlds. He was fully Jewish, and he was fully Greek or Hellenized. So no matter where he went, he was going to be winsome, okay? So he was like the epitome of the superstar, right? Now, the reason why I'm highlighting him is some scholars believe that the major Corinthian problem is their pride attached through the ministry of Apollos or someone like him. That actually Apollos' ministry caused a big part of the problem. Here's why. Remember, they all grew up in a culture that said whoever talks the best is the best. So when they were listening to Paul, they were all amazed. But then all of a sudden, they heard Apollos. And they were like, well, hold on a second. We can have all the Paul stuff and have a legit speaker. Oh my gosh, I like that dude. He's way better. Like Paul starts out and then he's like, hey, you guys are all dead in your sins. You need to get saved. And we're like, yeah, I'm already saved. Now what? And he's like, that's it. And you're like, no, dude, like there's more to it, right? I wanna hear the deep stuff. I mean, I'm tired of this milk. I want, the, I want the meat. And Paul's like, how about you own what I just said? Uh-oh. And they were like, no, 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 I like the fancy one. Apollos talks about fancy stuff. Any of that stuff ever happened in churches today? 
Hmm, interesting. You see, look at verse 17. For, I was about to go off on a tangent. <laughs> Self-edit, woo! For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. Here's what he just said. I know my lane. I keep in my lane. I did not come here to wow you with fancy words. I came in, I planted the church, I gave you the gospel, and you need to own it. That's it. I'm not trying to be something I'm not. I know what God asked me to do, and I'm comfortable in that place. I'm not trying to do anything else. Now, this brings up an issue of a problem with eloquence. We love great speakers. And when I say we, I'm talking about me. I love great speakers. I struggle with poor speakers. As a matter of fact, I've been told that I'm a great speaker. And I'm trying all my life to be a great speaker. You know the problem with great speakers is sometimes they steal glory from God. You see, here's the problem. When you're a great speaker, you have an ability to move a room when the Holy Spirit didn't even show up. Everyone goes home convinced they had an experience with the Lord, but they didn't. They were just moved by words. That's why Paul goes, hold on, I'm not getting fancy here. It is straight power of God or nothing. I'm not playing that game with you. Well, sure enough, when Apollos came in, they were wowed by the words. There's nothing wrong. The point is not to have lamer preachers. The point is that the preachers all have to realize if everyone leaves thinking about you, you lost. And that's the problem with eloquent speakers. You have to be very, very careful. Um, I was, speaking of unity, I was asked recently by, by Ray over at Bayside, Pastor Ray Johnston, he called me up and he said, would you be willing to be a part of our Bible conference? Anything Ray asked me to do, I'm like, yep, we're doing it, right? He's come over here and he's preached here and, and uh, you know, we've had Andrew, Pastor Andrew over here to preach and, and I, I love those guys. They're one of those easy ministries to be involved with because we have so many things in common. Right? So he asked me, I was like, absolutely. So I go over there and I, I spoke on anxiety in the Bible. All right. In that conference right after me was a guy named Mark Clark. This guy is absolutely hilarious. He's from Canada and he comes down and he's really into apologetics, but he's just funny. He's just a fun communicator. He has Tourette's and makes the most of it. And this guy is hilarious. So now he is just ADHD all over the place. So if you're taking notes, you're lost. But as he's preaching, he's just dropping bombs, right? Well, he brings up this point. He said, let's talk about the story of Jonah. You guys all know it, right? Guy gets swallowed by a fish, gets spit out, goes into the city, doesn't want people to get saved, preaches like the worst message ever, and everyone gets saved. He's then mad about it and hangs out bitter, right? That's the story of Jonah. He said, just remember this, God anointed the message, not the preacher. Now, he was making one point, but here's what I think it also means. I don't think that God doesn't anoint preachers. I think he does. But he always anoints his word. Does that make sense? So the warning to all of us as teachers is regardless of whatever you do, make sure some of the unadulterated word of God is coming out. Because that's going to change lives more than your brilliant speaking. Does that make sense? All right, let's keep moving forward. Verse 19. For it is written in the Old Testament, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. Jews, they all demand supernatural signs. Greeks all seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. I get it. A stumbling block to the Jews, because they don't think he's a Messiah, and it's stupidity to the Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Why 
does God want to shut down wisdom in this world? I thought wisdom was a good thing. Only if it leads to God, right? So he's going to shut it down. And so he does so by using things that are absurd and silly. Here's our message. I want you to believe in a guy that showed up 2,000 years ago. You don't have a whole lot of proof about the guy. We don't certainly have any videotape footage. But he said that he's the son of God and that he died for your sins. And then he died and he rose again. Once again, no footage. But he is the king of kings and lord of lords. He says that if you will trust in him, he will be your savior and he will cleanse you from all your sins and he is your entrance into heaven. And I want you to keep engaging with him because he's alive forevermore, but he's invisible and he doesn't talk out loud very much. That's our message. Is that not strange? Why would God use a silly foolish, absurd message like that. Why not come up with something cool, right? Why not come up with something that was verifiable and factual and all this stuff, right? Because pride is such a problem for human beings. God designed it in such a way that as long as you're full of yourself, you don't get a Messiah. God designed it in such a way that if you, unless you're willing to humble yourself and become like a child, there's no heaven for you. Because pride is such a problem, you're sitting in his seat. And until you're willing to get off the throne of your life and give it to him, you're not going anywhere. So he will consistently grab that which is weak, that which is foolish, and say, how about that? And you go, well, I'm not doing that. All right. And I guess you're not saved either. Wow. Powerful, yeah? Here we go. Let's look at verse 26. For consider your calling, brothers and sisters. You guys are perfect examples. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many of you were powerful. Not many of you were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being may boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you're in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who brags, brag in the Lord. What did he just say? He just said this. You guys are a perfect example. You weren't all that fancy, and then all of a sudden God saves you. Holy Spirit comes upon you. Now you think you're the greatest thing in the world. Come on. It's God. It's always been God. Stop stopping at people. Look through them. Look through yourself. Who's doing all this? You should never brag about you. You're just a jar of clay. If you want to brag, brag about the fact that God can use a jar of clay and do what he's doing. Worldly wisdom asks the questions, what can we know about our universe and what is the possibility of man? As noble as that sounds, it cannot save Godly wisdom asks the questions, what can we know about both the natural and supernatural, and what are the depths of God? That's a different ballgame. So God is going to frustrate the world's wisdom because it's humanistic and secular, and he will promote his wisdom, but he'll do so in a way that demands humility. Here's the mind-blowing concept for today. I wanna go all the way back to what Paul's point was. He's like, man, why is the church dividing so much? You guys, I can tell you this, in all my years of ministry, I have never seen wholesale division in the church like the last four years. Every time in all my other years, I saw church splits, but they were all about very specific issues, very specific things. In the last four years, I've seen everyone divide over everything churches, everyone's moving around, everyone's switching, everyone's changing. Friendships are being lost. Families are being ripped apart. And you got to ask, what the heck is going on? Here's the mind-blowing concept. Ready? Write this down. The heart of our division is our heart. The heart of our division is our heart. You think it's issues. It's not. It's not what you're arguing about. 
It's how you're arguing. That's what's killing us. You guys, it's okay to disagree. It's okay to debate. It's okay to bring challenge. It's okay to expect change. None of those things are wrong. Those are healthy. But the heart in which you do it will determine whether or not there is division. Remember, you cannot have diversity without disagreement. And diversity is the point. We have to have disagreement. But that doesn't mean we divide. You can disagree and still have fellowship. And I think that's very important. Yeah? So here's how we're going to close out. I think some of us have been wounded in the last four years. I think we have wounded people in the last four years. Let me talk about me personally. We have had division in our church, right? People have said things, done things, and I have been hurt. But let me be very clear. My words have hurt them as well. So what do we do with this? I think that what we need to do is, I'm gonna tell you right now, humanly speaking, I am not interested in letting it go. Yeah? But God is. And he's not going to let it go. God has to continue to promote unity in his family because we only got one family. So I figure it's either going to come through prayer or it's not at all. So we need to pray, yeah? So I'm just going to pray for some releasing time, maybe about what's hurt you and you hurting other people and forgiveness and things like that. And then... We'll close out, and if you're brand new, we got the Introducing Bridgeway right after this upstairs. I would love to meet you there if you've been here for the first time within the last six months. But I'm just gonna pray a blessing and we'll step out. Yeah? Let's do that. Holy Spirit, in this moment where we feel like we're actually seeing the world clearly, we recognize, God, we have hurt some people. And we wanna begin right there. Because, Lord, we're always thinking about how they hurt us. So, Lord, in this moment, we ask, Lord, that you would soften our hearts, that we would seek healing and forgiveness, that, Lord, that we would not be hard-hearted and resentful, because, Lord, we don't want to be part of the enemy's team of causing division. Lord, for those of us that have been hurt, we ask that you would knit us back together, that you would so fill us up and open our eyes to your grace and your love and your kindness, that we have lots of cushion. That, Lord, that we would be able to say, you know what, I can cascade forgiveness to someone else because of what you've done for me. So, Father, I just pray right now a release of our hearts to holding on to being the judge, jury, and executioner. And I pray, Lord, would you have your way? Would you continue to build your family together that we all might collectively glorify you. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.